Our second reading is from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The word of the Lord. If you uh, get a chance to read an obituary of somebody that you love, here's what you'll find. You'll find that they are giving you a list of dates, names, places they've gone to school, places they've worked, people they're still related to. And for the most part, if you really read an obituary that you know the person, it just doesn't do justice to the person. So maybe if it's a more famous person, you get a little bit more about their life, and you think, okay, I know a little bit more about them, but you don't really know them. And I've told people when I've done funerals, I tell them before the funeral, I say, look, we're going to do as best as we can for an hour as we worship God and we bring uh, remembrance of this person, family members might speak, but no one church service can do justice to a life. It can't. No one hour, hour and a half long service or series of events, even over a week or weekend, can do justice to the wholeness of a human being, to the complete person and their entire life. And yet, in the book of First and Second Kings, we get many obituaries, summaries of the entire person, Summaries of their life. Will Weinig just read out of 1 Kings, and I'm going to read that again. This is the summary of Ahab's life. Before we get any of the details, there's multiple chapters about this king, the things he does and doesn't do, the wars that he fought, but here's the summary of Ahab's life. Here's the obituary. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's the summary of Ahab's life. And what the sum of Ahab's life? There it is. Evil. He does more evil than any of the kings who were before him. And so if we're talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly, we're like, huh, what, what should we make of Ahab? It's not good. It's either bad or ugly. It's pretty clear. But one of the things I want us to see is that the de definition of his evil or his badness is in the sight of the Lord God. Throughout First and Second Kings, as throughout the Bible, the definition of a person is how God views them. Evil is always in God's view. It very may well have been that Ahab was a popular king. His people might have loved all the things he built, the wars that he fought. They might have been like, no, he's great. But Ahab's summary is given by God. It's what he did in relation to God that matters. 
And the two things that he does to provoke God are he marries Jezebel, who is the princess of Sidon. Sidon was an area like near Lebanon. Tyre was the capital city. So her dad was king of a city-state known as Tyre, a nearby foreign nation, a Canaanite people. And by marrying her, he, does, he falls into the same thing that Solomon does. We talked about him two weeks ago, which is to marry uh, foreign spouses, which was forbidden in Deuteronomy. The law of God was given and said, exclusively marry within the nation because I'm making a covenant with you and these other nations have made covenants with their gods. Do not go after them. Do not marry outside of the people of Israel. And then he does this. He builds a temple to Baal and, and he sets up Asherah. These are the main gods of, of the Canaanites. And I want to sit in that for just a minute because I think this is actually the main evil of Ahab. It is the idolatry. And as you look at First and Second Kings, what you're going to find is the problem again and again is idolatry. It is going after the foreign gods, which sounds very weird to us. Why would that be such an attractive thing? But you have to remember, of course, the ancient world, the way that they operated. They had gods for everything. Like if you, the Greeks are more famous, the Roman gods, right? The, the Greek god, goddess of, uh, of sex and beauty was Aphrodite. So if that was something you were after, Aphrodite, you went and worshiped there. If you were after fertility and wealth, it was Artemis. Well, the Canaanites were just the same. They had gods for just about everything. And the two main gods were Baal and Asherah. Baal was the rain and fertility god. It was the male god that was like responsible for ensuring prosperity of the land and any family. So if you were a king and you wanted your land to be prosperous, your people to be happy and fruitful, Baal was the one. He would ensure your nation not only survived, but thrived. And Asherah was the, the queen or the, the other goddess associated with Baal, the mother goddess. It's, they talk about high places in the book of Kings. They worshiped in high places, not where God said. It was basically hilltops where there was trees or poles they would set up where they would worship Asherah that also involved cult prostitutes and the sexual acts in order to elicit the activity of the gods. And Ahab goes so far as to build a temple for Baal. Now, this is a point in Israel's history, which Dean talked about last week, when the nation was split into two kingdoms. So I'm not going to try to lose you here, but the main kingdom was down around Jerusalem. Judah was the name of that nation. And the kings from David on down were in Jerusalem. But there was a split that happened after Solomon because of his own sin, where the nation of Israel became the other 10 or 11 tribes of the people of Israel, and their capital city was Samaria. And up there is where Ahab is king. So he goes to his capital city where he is king for this entire portion of the people of Israel, of God's people, and he builds a temple. But the temple is not to Yahweh. The temple is to Baal. And he raises up hundreds of prophets. He's got a great seminary going on, lots of people getting ordained, but they're all for Baal. He makes Baal worship the exclusive national religion of the people of Israel while he's king. And in this sense, he is completely rejecting the covenant God of Israel. The God who called Abraham and said, I will make you a nation. I will give you a land. I will be your God. The God who delivered them out of the Exodus, out of, out of slavery in Egypt, through the Exodus, gave them the law of Moses and gave them promises. I will be with you. I will be your God. And Ahab's like, that's not the God we want. We want Baal. He's rejecting the covenant God. 
That's his first and main evil. His second one was actually what kind of, they, they go hand in hand, it was that he marries Jezebel. Now that name Jezebel is nowadays termed a whore, a tramp, something like that, but actually had nothing to do with the, the person of of Jezebel in the stories. If you read First and Second Kings, you actually read the Bible, it doesn't say anything about that. What it says is that she did evil in God's eyes. But she's Canaanite. She doesn't know God. In other words, all the evil that Jezebel does is what's natural to her. She was the daughter of a foreign king who pushes her gods, her national religion, and tries to eliminate her political opponents. The same thing her dad would have done. So when she gets married to Ahab, she's like, all right, I'm going to keep doing what I do as a Canaanite princess. Push my gods, eliminate political opponents, ensure my survival. And here's what we have to see too is, given the prophet's words throughout Ahab's life, Elijah spoke to him all the time, this one prophet Micaiah spoke to him, and the narrator of Kings, all of them give their words to Ahab, and God's main issue is with Ahab, not with Jezebel. So while there is some ties to Jezebel and the, the linking here, we are not meant to put that there, nor should you and I do that sort of thing. Blame somebody else for our own idolatry. The Bible sees idolatry, and this is where the marriage thing comes in as well, as spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the whole book of Hosea talk about how God is wedded to you. Will you stay wedded to him? And in order to see the connection as well, you have to think about the way marriages worked in the ancient Near East. So in the ancient Near Eastern world of the Bible, marriages were covenantal, they were not romantic. They might have been romantic, but not really. They were covenantal and they were bringing two families or two clans together when a man and a woman got married. And often what we have in First and Second Kings is bringing two kingdoms together. And so when a king like Ahab marries the daughter of the king of Sidon, it's not just, oh, I think she's really pretty, can I marry your daughter? What he's doing and doing so is making an economic and political alliance with a foreign nation. He's making an alliance with that foreign king and saying, hey, let's be trade partners economically, we'll rely on each other and help make each other wealthy, and we'll be political partners, so we'll be military protectors of one another against the Syrians or somebody else. So that marriage with Jezebel was actually an alliance with a foreign nation. Israel was called specifically and exclusively to trust Yahweh, the God of the covenants, the God of the Bible, to trust God to provide with rain, with fruitfulness, with children, to trust God to protect you and not to make alliances with Egypt and trust their chariots or the swords of Sidon and trust their army Trust God to fight for you. Trust God to protect and provide for you. And trust God alone. An alliance like Ahab makes involves not just getting married and having some economic and political stuff. It also involves cultural and religious acceptance of the other peoples. And you begin to take on their practices and values. So when Ahab marries Jezebel, 
the daughter of a Canaanite king, he is right in that moment rejecting the sufficiency and promises of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he's going after other gods to meet his needs. Rejecting the sufficiency of God and going after other gods to meet his needs. Adultery. And the Bible says we all do this. In fact, I don't know where you are spiritually. I don't know where you are with relation to God, with Christianity. But regardless of where you are, whether you kind of are all in or half in, agnostic, atheist, skeptic, whatever, everyone is religious. Novelist David Foster Wallace said in his famous Kenyan College commencement speech, in the day-to-day trenches of life, and Wallace was an atheist agnostic, in the day-to-day trenches of life, there is no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. All people are religious. We have core commitments, things that are ultimate to us. It might be Jesus. It might be your career. It's whatever is ultimate, whatever matters most to us. It's where we find our identity. It's where we establish our priorities. It's what we end up worshiping and serving. And the Bible's language for this sort of religiousness, this sort of worshiping something, this sort of making something ultimate, the Bible's language for it is idolatry. And we are people who are, who, whose hearts, our loves and desires are always making new idols. The idols of our heart might also be called our functional saviors. A functional savior is like, oh, I trust Jesus with my salvation, but in my day-to-day happiness, I'm trusting something else. Am I really completely at peace if all I have is Christ? Or do I also have to have my kids' happiness, financial security? Whatever that is, is my functional savior. It's what I'm really trusting and must have. And our hearts are constantly loving and trusting something else. What is the idol of my heart? It's found in my greatest hopes and dreams. What am I really after? And in my fears and nightmares. What am I most afraid of? There's core motivators, as one psychologist talked about it, of power and control and approval and comfort. Ultimately, one of those things will motivate us. These things like, I need power. I need to be in control. I need people's approval. I just want comfort and ease and pleasure in life. You can see these core idolatrous motivators in a question like this. Why might somebody stay in a career that they hate? Why might you stay in a career that you hate? It could be any number of core reasons. The core reason you stay in a career you hate might be because that job gives you power and influence, and you must have power and influence. You must be the sort of guy who has this sort of job. Or it might be your own security. This job is safe. I can't lose it. And what matters most is having a job and having money. Or you might stay in a job you hate because of your parents' opinion. The idea of your parents not approving of what you're doing, the career you've chosen, is just devastating. You cannot choose to go outside of that. Or you may just stay in a career because of the money. You hate it, but it's great money. And you've grown to love the lifestyle that you've been able to live off of because of the money. The power, the control, the approval, the comfort are actually the idols of the heart. The career just keeps it going. We sacrifice even ourselves, to achieve it. Tim Keller, in his great book, The Counterfeit Gods, from 12 years ago now, 13, 
summed up the issue this way. The human heart takes good things like career and love and material possessions and even family and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the integrating centers of our lives because we think they can give us the significance and security, safety, and complete fulfillment if we attain them. What is an idol? An idol, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. For Ahab, the idol was Baal. His alliance with the family of Jezebel and ultimately worshiping Baal. Baal will provide security and prosperity, the heaven, the salvation I'm really after. So what's the equivalent for us of Baal? It's not just every one of these possible ideals. It's the things that we actually look to culturally to give us the heaven and salvation we're after. You know, one main one in our culture today, in, in our modern Western American culture, one of the main things we make a God is expressive individualism. It's that demand for autonomy to, to become the authentic self. Be happy, do what you want. No one can tell you what to do. We have made a God out of autonomy, out of nobody telling me what to do. It is my money, it's my choices, it's my body, it's my relationships, it's my identity, it's my future, I can do whatever I want. No one can say anything about it, even God. We've also made, especially in an area like this that we live in, we've made money and possessions a functional savior. And this is probably closer to what Baal was for Ahab. Money and possessions are the sort of thing we all do. If you have lived in Fairfax County for any length of time, if you're in America, we spend our whole lives getting, storing up, and spending more and more and more and more. We have made a Baal of money. And I want to dig into that for a little bit because it's kind of fun to talk about it. So here's my question. Are you greedy? How would you even know if you were? How would you even know if money was an idol in your life? Let me give you what I mean by this is, like thinking about the commandments, you know if you've broken most of those, right? You know if you've stolen something from somebody else. You know if you've lied. You know if you've committed murder or adultery. I hope. You may, even if you're very self-aware, have the ability to admit you have anger issues or control problems, but greed? How would you even know if you have a love of money problem? Let me help you guys out. We all do. Every one of us has a love of money problem. We all have a greed problem. We just do. We're 21st century Americans living in one of the wealthiest counties in the world. We probably do. We know this, especially as Christians. We know money and possessions can't save us, but they can make us really happy. And here's the question, I guess, to answer or to get, get at is, is that as you've made more money in your life, maybe you've gone through seasons where you haven't or right now is one, but let's say you've made more money in your life. Do you find yourself more free and more generous or more anxious? As you've made more money, are you more free and more generous or more lavish on yourself? Anxious or lavish? I tend to fall into the lavish category. The problem is this. The more I get, the more all of a sudden I need. 
So I'm not the sort to get anxious about financial security in the future, but I enjoy the things that money have been able to buy. And then eventually those things I've enjoyed become needs. I didn't used to check the thread count on the hotel sheets before I booked it. That's just weird. But let's say I might do it. Does having more money make you more thankful to God? Even as you spend on something and get to enjoy something, does enjoying that thing cause you to worship God or to want and need the thing? Money can be a controlling center. And even if it's not the controlling center of your life, it's a great revealer of what you actually worship. So here's the question that you ask for yourself is, what do you spend money on easily? That can possibly reveal an, a true God underneath it. Money is just the revealer of it because you'll spend money, whatever it's easy for you to spend money on is, might be kind of underneath it what is actually what you worship. Do you spend money easily on clothes or on your appearance? Beauty, approval? Could be what's ultimate to you. Do you spend money on food and drink and on vacations? Comfort, pleasure, maybe ultimate. Or are you like, no, I am not one of those people. Wasting money on clothes, wasting money on vacations, food, eating out. No, I invest, I save, I'm very frugal. Well, great, security and control are probably your gods. Whether you're lavish or frugal, it is likely that something else is what we must have. You know, one of the gods of the Canaanites, not mentioned in these chapters, is Moloch. Moloch was a horrible god of the Canaanites. Moloch was a god that guaranteed financial prosperity of your family and the future of, and the future of your children. In order to worship Moloch, you would go to the temple of Moloch where there was a giant statue with a bronze giant belly of this, this god, and the belly was a furnace into which you put your firstborn child to burn it alive in order to guarantee the financial prosperity of your family and all of your future children. That's horrible. We would never sacrifice our children or our marriage to our career. Or would we? All of us use money. We all use money to get the acceptance, joy, hope, security that we're meant to found in Christ. And money can be a functional savior. Money was the functional savior for that rich young ruler that Jesus confronted in, or confronted Jesus in Mark chapter 10. The guy comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He goes, keep the commandments. He goes, I've kept them all. And, and the thing is about this guy, he probably was a great guy. There's nothing about him that people were like, oh, it's that guy. Well, everyone knows he's a jerk. He was probably the nicest guy in your community. You would want your daughter to marry him. You want him to be your next door neighbor. He kept all the rules. He didn't say bad words. He wasn't angry tweeting. He wasn't getting drunk. He was the nicest guy at work. He followed all the rules, was a great husband, a great dad. Did everything religiously, morally perfect. And Jesus says, okay, great. Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus is like, okay, how about, you've done all these things? Okay, how about this one? 
but we don't always see it. It's hard for us to see it. It's hard for us to see it because when we think about money, we always do it comparatively, and there is always somebody richer. There's always somebody with more money, greater vacations. Tim Keller, summing this up, said this, why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? The counterfeit God of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. Once you are able to afford a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools, participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. And we start doing this at a very young age. If you're in high school or middle school, you don't think, oh, are we wealthy or not? You think about it in comparison to the people near you, the people in your school. What we do with our money and possessions matters. And all of us should probably assume that we have a money problem. But how would you know? How would you know if you have a money problem or anything, anything that's an idol, a false god, a functional savior, something you're worshiping besides God? Here's the problem is Ahab, poor Ahab. I mean, the guy had so many prophets come at him, prophets of the Lord. Elijah was one of the most powerful prophets. Elijah comes and says, there's gonna be no rain, there's no rain. Elijah comes back and says, there's gonna be fire coming down on Mount Carmel. He sees it, it happens. Then Elijah comes and says, there's going to be rain. It does. The things that Elijah says are going to happen, happen. There's another prophet, he says things and they do. Another prophet confronts him, says the things, they happen. All these prophets say things, they come true, and yet Ahab ignores the prophets. He ignores their warnings against his sin of idolatry. At one point in one of the chapters, he temporarily repents because he sort of is worried about what might happen to him, but he quickly forgets that he repented and never fully turns back to Yahweh. And the problem for Ahab, as for us, is if the idols of your heart, if your functional saviors are culturally normative, if it's the wise way to go, if it's what everyone else does, would we even listen to a prophet if God sent one? Would we listen to our family and friends if God used them? How would you know if you have an idol problem, a money problem, if there's something else you're trusting besides God? Elijah challenges the people of Israel on the top of Mount Carmel with this famous line that also applies to Ahab, it applies to us. He says to the people of Israel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. How long will you go limping between two opinions? You cannot serve both God and... To add anything on top of Christ as necessary for you to be fulfilled is to reject God. And we don't do this knowingly. Look, I'm one of you. We do the same things. We don't do this knowingly. What happens is we drift into the values of our culture. We kind of slide into a self-focus. And it erodes our awareness of spiritual syncretism. It erodes our awareness that we are serving two things or trying to limp between two opinions. 
An obituary, a funeral does not do justice to a person. And yet, every king in the book of First and Second Kings gets a summary of their life, a short obituary that defines the person. Why is that the case? Why does that summary of Ahab define him? Because while you and I may not know a whole person, I can't even know the whole of one of my children, my wife, I might not even know the whole of myself, God does. No autobiography can completely sum up a person in their heart and life, but God can. God knows the whole of a person, the whole of their life. And what it comes down to in First and Second Kings is you are what you love and what you worship. That's who you are. You are what you worship and what you love most. So we get a, another summary statement towards the end of Ahab's life. And it's a complete flip of a guy from earlier. But listen to these two summary statements given about two kings of Israel. In chapter 21, the summary of Ahab is, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Here's the sum of your life, Ahab. You served for 22 years, did all sorts of amazing things, fought and won wars. Here's the sum of your life. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. And the opposite is Asa. The heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. You know, a couple of verses before that, it talks about the things Asa didn't do. Asa didn't do this. Asa didn't do this for the Lord. But there's a sum on his heart. The heart is he was wholly true to the Lord all his days. So what is the sum of your life today? Is it limping between two opinions or a heart wholly true to God? And what do you want God's summary of your life to be at the end? You know what's great is that this is not just about you becoming a better person, okay? Giving away more money. This is not just about you like kind of stopping your control issues. The gospel that we believe in is not a gospel of your performance. It is a gospel of grace. So don't forget that. The gospel of grace gives you a new sum of who you are. You might be a horrible person. You might struggle your whole life with money love, control issues, fears and need to be approved of. But this is the summary of a person who puts their trust in Christ. In Romans 8.1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what this is telling us? Christ Jesus takes the sum of your life on himself and gives you his. Let me put that another way. God the Father, if God the Father is going to sum up the life of Jesus, he might have a sentence, right? Here's the life of Jesus. I'm going to sum it up in one statement. That becomes your sum if your trust is in him. The gospel is by grace. It is not the good who are in and the bad who are out but the humble who are in and the proud who are out. You just need to admit your need and fall upon his loving mercy in Christ Jesus. Gospel faith involves acknowledging and repenting of your idolatrous heart and trusting in Christ and following him. 
It's a heart for God that desires to be, in the end, a woman or a man after God's own heart. Let's pray. Give us, O Lord, steadfast hearts, which no unworthy thought can drag down. Give us unconquered hearts, which no trial, suffering, tribulation can wear out. Give us upright hearts, which no unworthy purpose can tempt aside. Bestow upon us understanding to know you, diligence to seek you, wisdom to find you, and the faithfulness of a heart that may embrace you to the end of our days. Amen. Riches I am.